Today we're going to be in Acts chapter 21. But today is Mother's Day. And I was speaking to my wife yesterday in the kitchen. And we had such a really busy schedule this week. And uh, I got her some flowers for the garden and all. And I said, you know, I, I wanted to do much more, but we've just been so busy, we just kind of took a break, you know. And I said, uh, I'm sorry for not making a bigger thing out of it. And she said, don't be silly. She said, you honor me every day. And, okay, go ahead. Oh. <laughs> uh, but the point is that, and I was, it's interesting because I was thinking of that. My wife and I are often in harmony because we look at motherhood and what moms do, and uh, it shouldn't just be one day. It should be an ongoing, just honoring of your mom, uh, moms and, and the sacrifice they make, because motherhood is actually one of the best examples, if you think about it, self-sacrifice and discipleship on the planet. And I'm not just saying that to win points today. I, I really mean that. Uh, some memories from when I was young, uh, growing up, my mom was always thin. And uh, what I learned later in life was when we fell on hard times financially, she would make sure that her children were fed before she ate. Um, my mom taught me generosity. It starts when they're young. She taught me the principle of tithing before I don't think either one of us knew what tithing was. We lived in the basement of my grandmother's house, and I remember seeing every once in a while my mom write a check to, you know, hungry children or something like that. And I thought that we were, I guess, poor. And she basically said, there's always somebody who has it worse than you do. My mom taught me not to judge and to treat all people the same. And she taught my sister and I self-sacrifice. My mom's dream was always to become a nurse, and she is today. But she waited until she raised my sister and I uh, before she went to nursing school. And it paid dividends because when I was older, I was good in math, and I helped her with her math homework. <laughs> and I see that in my wife, too. She's an example of self-sacrificing. She pours a lot into my son. She gets a little uneasy, though, when she goes on a retreat or she goes away and has to stay over. Uh, she ends up calling me up, and I think that she's going to whisper sweet nothings on the phone because she hasn't seen me for a few hours, and she'll make the statement like, did you pack his lunch for school? Did you, get him, did you give him breakfast? Did you make him brush his teeth before he goes to bed? My first instance or my first thought is to get insulted. Hey, I'm his father. Of course I know how to do that. How insulting. But if I really think about it, there's some things on the list that I always forget. And my son is at the age where he knows how to tattle on me. <laughs> so I can't get away with anything. My wife will come home and my son just can't wait to say, Mommy, Mommy, guess what Daddy let me do? I'm like, if you don't shut up, Daddy's not going to let you do anything anymore. <laughs> well, you're laughing because you know what? It doesn't just happen in my household, obviously. But what I'd like to do is, I'd like to turn to Proverbs 31. It's kind of in the center of the Bible. Proverbs 31. Now, if you've been a Bible student for some time, you're thinking, well, he's going to talk about the virtuous wife. Actually, I'm not going to. There's ten verses, starting in verse one, that's a preamble to the virtuous wife that I really want to focus on. And it really, what it is, it's, it's a mother's wisdom. Proverbs 31, verse 1. The words of King Lemuel, the utterance which his mother taught him. What, my son, and what, son of my womb, and what, son of my vows? 
Do not give your strength to women, nor your ways to that which destroys kings. And what you see here is Lemuel means devoted to God. Now, I'm sure that part of his devotion came from his mother's example and her instruction. She's the one who apparently poured a lot of wisdom into King Lemuel. Verse 2 and 3, she says, What, son of my vows? Probably similar to Hannah when she said, Lord, if you give me a child, I will dedicate him to, to you for, the, for his whole life. Uh, and Samuel was dedicated to the Lord. But similar to, Sam, or to Hannah's instance, this mother dedicated her son, maybe before he was born. I remember when uh, we found out that my wife was pregnant. Uh, it wasn't something we were expecting. And we sat down and we prayed. And it was my first prayer for my son, who was just growing in the womb. And my prayer was, Lord, we didn't ask for him. But what we do ask is, we'd like to give him back to you in the form of being a godly man. You know, that he would raise up and be a, uh, just make an impact for Christ. And that was really my prayer ever since he was in the womb, up until this day. My prayer for him. But you see some wisdom deciphered here. And if you have a, a Bible that's more of a paraphrase or, um, you know, different type of translation that helps to understand the wording better. What you see here is the wisdom deciphered here is number one. She tells Lemuel to be careful of lustful situations. Don't be foolishly ruled by sexual immorality. And that's good advice. Because as a king, you know, he would be in a position of power and he would have that access. So mom is giving him good practical wisdom, first thing. Verse 4. It is not for kings, O Lemuel, it is not for kings to drink wine, nor for princes intoxicating drink, lest they drink and forget the law and pervert the justice of all the afflicted. Give strong drink to him who is perishing, and wine to those who are bitter of heart. Let him drink and forget his poverty and remember his misery no more. Two, practical wisdom for imbibing in alcohol. As a man of of an important God-ordained position as the king, he shouldn't be a drinker. Specifically, verse 5, a man acting as a king or a judge who is a drinker will not be able to mete out justice properly. His judgment will be affected. And we see that today. We know that through uh, the biosciences. We know that you, you shouldn't get drunk and get in a car and drive because it's a central nervous system depressant and it affects certain portions of the brain and you, there's a judgment issue. Okay? So as a king and a judge, don't be a drunkard, Lemuel. Alcohol should be saved, according to this mother, for those in desperate or extreme situations, i.e. an anesthesia, an analgesic, or like a prescribed drug. Verse 8 and 9. Open your mouth for the speechless, in the cause of all who are appointed to die. Open your mouth, judge righteously, and plead the cause of the poor and the needy. Mom teaches Lemuel, third point, the proper place for social activism. We see in today's world everybody has a cause, right? But she's saying social activism, Lemuel, should be reserved for those who cannot defend themselves, the poor, the needy, and the afflicted in society. Verse 10, who can find a virtuous wife, for her worth is far above rubies. Fourth thing mom teaches, she's teaching her son how to choose the right woman to be his wife. Now, I'm sure if she was speaking to her daughter, she would teach her daughter the right man for her. Okay, but she's speaking to her son here. And the mom goes on in helping him choose a virtuous wife or what a virtuous wife is like. But I'm not going to continue because today is, is 
more for, for Mother's Day that I, I kind of want to focus on. And then there's the whole childbirth thing. Um, I was there to support my wife because I couldn't do much else, but I was there. I really respect motherhood. I really respect moms. And I want to say to any of you here, I, and I run into a lot of single moms, and they're trying to raise a family by themselves. And the world is telling women, you have to be a career woman. You have to be this. You have to be that. Nonsense. If you're a mother and you're raising kids or you are in some way impacting someone as a spiritual mother, God is pleased with that. You don't have to do anything. You don't have to do anything. I think we, take, we, we look at life cheap. We cheapen it. Because if we really, really pondered the gestation process and how a, a, a woman carries a life in her womb and gives birth, uh, I think that we would have a, a better appreciation of motherhood. And pragmatically, because I can be prag, a pragmatist, there would be no population without moms. Makes sense, doesn't it? But there's an article I want to read. This is a great article. It says there's a study, and it says this, stay-at-home moms are worth nearly $117,000 a year. I see some nudging going on. <laughs> this is a good article. I can't wait to read it. If a stay-at-home mom could be compensated in dollars rather than personal satisfaction and unconditional love, she'd rake in a nifty sum of nearly $117,000 a year. That's according to a pre-Mother's Day study released Thursday by Salary.com, a Waltham, Massachusetts-based firm that studies workplace compensation. The eighth annual survey calculated a mom's market value by studying pay levels for 10 job titles with duties that a typical mom performs, ranging from housekeeper and daycare center teacher to van driver, psychologist, and chief executive officer. This year, the annual salary for a stay-at-home mom would be $116,805, while a working mom who also juggles an outside job would get $68,405 for her motherly duties. One stay-at-home mom said the six-figure salary sounds a little low. <laughs> I think they must have pulled my wife on that one. My wife's philosophy is, uh, of working together is my job is to bring the money in and it's her job to spend it. <laughs> I think a lot of people think we sit home and have a lot of fun and don't do a lot of work, said Samantha Russell, a Fremont, North uh, New Hampshire mother, who left her job as pastry chef to raise two boys, ages two and four. She says, quote, but they should try cleaning their house with little kids running around and messing it up right after I clean it. The biggest driver of her mom's theoretical salary is the amount of overtime pay she'd receive for working more than 40 hours a week. The 18,000 moms surveyed about their typical week reported working 94.4 hours, meaning they'd be spending more than half their working hours on overtime. Working moms reported an average 54.6-hour mom work week besides the hours they spent at paying jobs. Russell agreed that her job as stay-at-home mom is more than full-time but she said her job brings intangible benefits she, would, she wouldn't enjoy in the workplace. The rewards aren't monetary, but it's a reward knowing that they're safe and happy, Russell said of her sons. It's worth it all. Pretty impressive. At this point, what I'd like to ask is any of you who are mothers or pregnant uh, for the first time or stepmothers, foster mothers, or those acting as spiritual mothers, I would ask you at this time to stand because we'd like to pray for you.
Father in heaven, we just thank you for the service that these ladies have provided, Lord. And even when it seems mundane and day after day, Lord, we know that you're pleased with them. And that's the most important thing, Lord. You've given them the gift of life. And even spiritual moms who's had a motherly influence over other people, Lord, uh, these things are priceless, Lord, that can't be replaced. We just pray for continued blessing and uh, that they would see the big picture and that they would see that maybe it won't be for years down the road, but what they've done and the capacity that they've acted will really pay big dividends in the spiritual world. We thank you for them and we bless them. And we ask these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. All right. Okay, today we're going to be in Acts chapter 21, starting in verse 1. Now it came to pass that when we had departed from them and set sail, running a straight course, we came to Kos, the following day to Rhodes, and from there to Patara. And finding a ship sailing over to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we had sighted Cyprus, we passed it on the left, sailed to Syria, and landed at Tyre. For there the ship was to unload her cargo. And finding disciples, we stayed there seven days. They told Paul through the Spirit not to go up to Jerusalem. When we had come to the end of those days, we departed and went our way. And they all accompanied us with wives and children till we were out of the city. And we knelt down on the shore and prayed. When we had taken our leave of one another, we boarded the ship and they returned home. There's a little geography here. Kos, Rhodes, Patara were just basically uh, locations on the southwest west end of modern-day Turkey. Cyprus is an island that still is south of Turkey. Uh, we went into prior detail about Cyprus. This is where Paul and Barnabas went on their first missionary journey. And when Paul and Barnabas had a rift, it was Barnabas and John Mark that went back through Cyprus. We covered that. Tyre is a port city on the Mediterranean on the western side of what's now known as Lebanon. Verse 4, they told Paul through the Spirit not to go to Jerusalem, and he did. Now, this is interesting because if you know your Bible, uh, there's a lot of debate. Did Paul disobey the Holy Spirit? Uh, that, that's a good question there. And there's a lot of uh, opinions on both sides because Paul was guided by the Holy Spirit. And anyone who's a believer and has received Jesus as their Lord and Savior has a part of God residing inside of them, and that is they're sealed with the Holy Spirit. And they're guided by the Spirit. Uh, God the Father had a, a, a huge role in the Old Testament. A lot of appearances of miracles, a lot of speaking directly to his prophets. And, uh, you know, and then that pointed to Jesus. Okay, And Jesus taught us how to live. He died for our sins. And then Jesus said, when I go, it's good that I go because I leave you the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit's job is to convict us of sin, to, to come alongside of us. The Holy Spirit has a lot of roles to give us wisdom. But I'm going to break this verse down, one, for the Bible student, and two, for the person looking for a simple application to take with them home to uh, bring into their lives, their everyday lives. One, grammatically, in the Greek, Paul told, Paul, they told Paul through the Spirit. The word through in Greek is dia, which is a primary preposition denoting channel of action. Now, there are subtle nuances to dia depending on context. Dia can also mean because of or in consequence of. In other words, they told Paul because of the Spirit or in consequence of the Spirit not to go. In other words, 
the Holy Spirit shows the disciples some awful things that are going to happen to Paul, okay? And they say, hey, Paul, don't go. Now, we would do that too. If I said I'm going to go on a missions trip to Italy with Mark and visit his church and the Holy Spirit told one of you, uh, you're not going to make it back, you might say to me, don't go. But you don't know what the Lord is doing there. Maybe through that instance, the Lord is going to bring many people to Christ. Okay? So the other thing is he says he, they told, he told Paul through the Spirit not to go to Jerusalem. Not to go in the Greek is me anabainen which basically just means it's a subjunctive, okay? Now, may is in the front, which means there's a, there's a negation involved. However, in the Greek, the word that could have been used is u, in, in, before anabainen, or ume, not to be confused with oive, that's a different language. <laughs> but ume is the strongest negation possible, and that's not used here. That's an absolute prohibition. So you make, we make more of a case of that this is the, the disciples' take on what they received from the Holy Spirit, and accordingly they told their beloved Paul, don't go. Scripturally, the second phase, scripturally. Okay? Acts 22:18, the Lord tells Paul to get out of Jerusalem because the message is not going to be received, and there'll be danger there. So God tells Paul, all right, get out of Jerusalem. It's dangerous there. However, in Acts chapter 11, Acts chapter 15, in Acts chapter 18, he's back in Jerusalem. Furthermore, in Acts chapter 23, verse 11, the Lord commends Paul's work in Jerusalem. And in Acts chapter 20, verse 22, Paul says, I go bound by the Holy Spirit to Jerusalem. So what gives? The third stage. Are you confused? Well, don't be, because the Apostle Paul wasn't. You see, the Apostle Paul, again, he was guided by the Spirit. And whether it's his life or our life, it's not that God speaks to us once and then he ignores us. Paul, through the Spirit, was constantly in tune with the will of the Father. Okay? Now, understanding that our relationship with God is intended to be a dynamic relationship, not a static relationship, not stagnant. Okay? We're always receiving from the Lord. I can't think of a day since I got saved that I don't talk to my Heavenly Father. I can't think of a day that goes by that I don't pray, that I don't speak to him, that I don't just sit still and listen to his voice. It's a dynamic relationship. And if you take that and you bring it to other relationships, you can see the same thing. I can't think of a day since my wife and I got married that a, a, a day went by where we don't speak. We could be upset with each other. I could be at a conference. It doesn't matter. But a day does not go by where I don't speak to my wife. Now, Let's look at relationship a little bit deeper because that's what it is. That's what God desires from all of us, a relationship as a father to his child. But you may say, but I grew up in a home where my father wasn't a great guy or my mother wasn't a great lady. You have to think of the most perfect parental relationship, and that's what God wants with you. He's perfect. He's not like your earthly parents. They're going to make mistakes. So question, in a marriage, what is the one word? I'll make it easy and call out. What is the one word? A breakdown in what that leads to maybe divorce? You all got it. Communication. Communication is part of relationship. Okay? You have a, a disagreement about something. You can't resolve it. Uh, little by little, you, you stop talking to each other. And then what happens? There's a rift in that spousal relationship. There's actually, and they, they almost become a stranger in your house. Ronnie Millsap, a country and western, wrote a, a song years ago. There's a stranger in my house. Remember that? Okay, maybe you don't. 
We could also look at the parental relationship. What is it? It's the same word. What is it that breaks down, that causes a rift between a parent and their child? Now, when they're babies, they always have to go with you because they're helpless, and then they become seven, eight, nine, and you get to take them everywhere because they're, you know, kind of can walk and stuff. And then they become the teen years. And with some households, there's a rift. And then they eventually move out of the house and you don't speak to each other. What happened? What happened to that parental relationship? Well, maybe the teen got involved in something because they're looking for their identity. They, they tried different things. I tried weird things. And as parents, maybe you're a little standoffish because you don't understand it. And that starts the breakdown of communication. And before you know it, your children are strangers to you. See, going back to our relationship with God, God desires that perfect relationship. It's not that uh, I go to a funeral and I say a prayer or I go to a wedding and I listen to the prayer. It's a constant relationship that we have with our Father in heaven. And Paul had that. Paul wasn't confused because he was so in tune with the Father's will and so sensitive to the Spirit that if the Lord said, don't go to Jerusalem, he explained it to Paul. He knew why. If he said, come back later, Paul didn't argue with him or say, you know what, I feel like a yo-yo. He did what the Lord asked him to do. And God desires that relationship with us. And my question to you is, do you desire that relationship? Because God wants that relationship with you. You see, when he created us, he gave us free will. He set us in motion. He said, make choices. And when he asks God, when God asks us to love him, if it's forced love, it's not love. There's no such thing as forced love. He set us in motion. And we sinned. Our parents did it in the garden, and if they didn't do it, we would have done it. And the world has been stained. Mankind's relationship with God has been stained by sin. But since... But since the blood of Jesus, God has always been calling us home. Well, I'm looking for a miracle. I'm looking for a sign, and then I'll believe. But Jesus says, believe first, and then you will see. Your eyes will be open, right? So my question to you today is, Paul wasn't upset. Through all these situations, he loved the Lord, and he was willing to do whatever the Lord called him to do. Verse 7. And when we had finished our voyage from Tyre, we came to Ptolemaeus, greeted the brethren, and stayed with them one day. On the next day, we who were Paul's companions departed and came to Caesarea, and entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. Now this man had four virgin daughters who prophesied. Ptolemaeus and Caesarea are two more coastal cities prior to getting to Jerusalem. And I I didn't have this in my notes, but I just want to say this. Philip's daughters, he had four virgin daughters who prophesied. They were extremely important for the kingdom of heaven. Whether they predicted the future or whether they spoke forth God's word, again, it's, it's on Mother's Day, people think that there's an erroneous... You know, if you tell a lie enough times, people start to believe it, that the Bible's anti-women. The Bible talks so much about the important role of women, okay? Four virgin daughters that prophesied, not one, but all four of them. That's pretty impressive. No doubt they served the Lord. And we see the Bible is filled with uh, women who were uh, military leaders, who were deaconesses, who were prophetesses. It's all in the scripture. And we just hit one of those right now. But Philip, okay, Philip the dad, he fled. If you remember, if you've been with us for more than a few months, he fled at Paul's persecution of the church. Prior to him becoming the apostle Paul, he was not a good guy. He persecuted the church. He had a conversion experience and he changed. Philip started waiting tables, and now he's known as the evangelist. What you see is that principle that keeps coming up, faithful in the little 
and then faithful in, in much. In Acts chapter 6, Philip and Stephen served. They waited tables. They did some menial tasks so that the leaders of the church could be in prayer and study the word of God. Kind of reminds me of me and Mark. You know, when we started and we got saved, uh, we did whatever the church had asked us to do. You know, clean toilets or do this. Yeah, I'll, I'll do it. I'll do it. I just want to serve the Lord. Now, I don't think, Mark, if you would agree with me, I could never have foreseen me being a pastor here. I just did what the Lord had asked me to do. And when you're faithful in the little, he moves you on to other things. That's a great principle. But what we have here is Philip. He co-labored with Stephen in Acts chapter 6, whom Paul took part in Stephen's murder. Now they're on the same side of the fence, Paul and Philip. Now, if you, if you, I love to interject myself into the scripture and, and almost as if I'm there. Because I believe if you really love the Lord and you really read the scriptures and you pray, the Bible can come alive to you. You have Philip and you have Stephen co-laboring together, like me and Mark were, right? Loving each other, loving the Lord. Hey, this is cool. Uh, and then somebody comes along and takes the life of Stephen, who was a man who was filled with the Holy Spirit, who had a face of an angel at the time of his death, the Bible says. Now, maybe Philip, and he, and he fled. He might have had a bitter root towards Paul. I don't know. But the Lord made all that go away, and now Philip and Paul are on the same side. Kind of reminds me of a situation that I had in my personal life where, as a police officer, right, I started as a police officer. I wasn't saved. Only a few years into the job did I, I get to know the Lord. Another person I know who was in an outlaw biker gang committed crimes. Uh, he didn't know the Lord. And through our lives, I became saved, and I changed, and he became saved, and he changed. And he became a pastor, and I became a pastor. But what's interesting is we're on the same side now. We actually did a radio interview with uh, my pastor, who was the mediator, and he asked us both to talk about our lives before Christ. And he would talk about how he assaulted police officers and, you know, got into bar fights and committed crimes. And I talked about how I would arrest people like him. Right. And now we're on the same side. You see, that's the beauty of Jesus Christ. You know, it transcends anything. It transcends gender. It transcends race. It transcends culture. It transcends, you know, the, being on the opposite side of the fence. And I've got to admit, over the years, I've had brothers in church um, who would come up to me and say, I've got to confess, in my old life, I used to assault police officers too. And now we're like brothers in the Lord. It's pretty amazing. But that's the beauty of a transcendent life. Now, when I deal with a bad guy, uh, since I'm still a police officer, I'm not sure whether I should hug him or shoot him. You know, it's confusing. <laughs> But the biggest manifestation of a converted life is change. And that's what attracts the unsaved to Jesus Christ. When we emulate Jesus, when we're like him, and our lives go from being self-centered or me-centered to loving others and doing good for others, and people look at you and go, but I knew you growing up. That's not you. What, what, what happened to you? You know, what happened? What, what did they do with the person that I knew back then? It's Jesus Christ. And when you explain to them how your life changed because of Jesus... Because of the power of God, they're attracted to that. The unsaved is not attractive to hypocritical Christians. As a matter of fact, the unsaved run away from church and Christianity because of the hypocrisy they see. But they are attracted to a changed life. Verse 10. And as we stayed for many days, a certain prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. When he had come to us, he took Paul's belt, bound his own hands and feet, and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, 
So shall the Jews at Jerusalem bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. So you had this Agabus, this prophet, who we saw before in Acts chapter 11, <clears throat> comes to the believers and tells them there's going to be a great famine okay, in the Roman Empire. And the Jerusalem church got hit heavy with that famine. Now we see Agabus again. Again, act out the scene. Put yourself into the story here, into history. You've got a bunch of believers hanging out, maybe talking about the Lord. You've got the Apostle Paul. Agabus comes by and says to Paul, now, they didn't have a belt like this back then. What they had was like a piece of cloth. It was like a sash that they would tie up and it would gird their uh, robe or whatever they were wearing so that they could move around. So Agabus, either he asked Paul for the sash or Paul gives it to him. And Agabus takes Paul's sash and you could see him probably sitting there and they were like, what's he doing? He's sitting there and he's going like this with his feet and tying his hands. And he said, the owner of this sash, these are the things that are going to happen in Jerusalem. They're going to, he's going to be bound and delivered over to the Gentiles. Now, I could imagine the onlookers going, wow, this guy's a prophet. What he says comes true. This is heavy stuff. What an object lesson. And the question is, would you still go? Would your friends encourage you not to go? The obvious reaction of those who loved Paul was, don't go. But if you remember in the book of Esther, Queen Esther was going to go before the king, and if she wasn't invited, it was a death sentence if the king was, was disposed to that. But she had to intercede for her people. And she said, if I perish, I perish, but I have to intercede for my people. The Apostle Paul was the same way. If I perish, I perish. I'm going to do the Lord's will. I followed his will all my life up to now. He's never done me wrong. Whatever the Lord's will is, I'm going to do it. Verse 13. Then Paul answered, What do you mean by weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. So when he would not be persuaded, we ceased, saying, The will of the Lord be done. Paul didn't have a death wish. As a matter of fact, if you follow, if you've been with us for a while, there were times where Paul was persecuted and he fled. He escaped persecution. Okay? Parallel to Jesus, it wasn't the appointed time. Even with Jesus, he fled um, more than once from the crowd. He, he fled from those trying to take him and arrest him because it wasn't the time. It wasn't his time to die. God has a plan for all of us, and he makes it clear when and how that we should carry it out. And that's important to know. And Paul says to them, why do you break my heart? It's hard not to let emotion get in the way of knowing what's right. No doubt they were crying and they were really working it. And they probably uh, played on Paul's emotions at this point. I understand how you feel, but this is what the Bible says. And sometimes we run into that. Our emotions kind of take over. Well, this is what the Bible says, and I've seen it in situations. This is what the Bible says, but Christians can be Christians for a long time. All of a sudden, there's an emotional issue, and they forget about what the Bible says, and they become emotional. But we have to understand that we're being myopic when we do that. We're being short-sighted. We're not seeing the big picture. Whatever it is the Lord says, we do it. And we always find that if we acquiesce to that, if we uh, follow that pattern all right, for ministry, things always work out right to the Lord's uh, pleasure. Once we start going emotionally and we start going in different directions, things get messed up because we stop following the Bible here and then we start, stop following the Bible here and before you know it, we're not following the Bible at all. And Paul said, listen, you, you're definitely working on my emotions. I love you too, but this is the Lord's will for me. 
So when he would not be persuaded, we ceased. You see this progression, it's kind of neat. First is a discussion of ideas. The Apostle Paul, all these other Christians, they're all equal. We're all equal here in God's eyes. God loves us all the same. We all carry the same importance. And it was a discussion of ideas with Paul, the leadership, and those that followed him. And eventually, the second thing that happens is the leadership, Paul, makes a prayerful decision. And it's not against God's word. And the third thing that happens, everyone else come together. They stop trying to convince him. They support the leadership, and they give it over to the Lord. And that's a great pr- progression. Exchange of ideas. Leadership makes a decision, a prayerful decision. It's not against the word of God. We all come together. We rally around the leadership, and then we say, the Lord, ask the Lord, please guide us in this decision that we've made together. In verse 15, And after those days we packed and went up to Jerusalem. Now next week we're going to pick it up with the events that unfold in Jerusalem. But as we close here, and, and taking it all into account, I kind of did a, a mixed bag, a little bit about Mother's Day, and then continuing in the scripture that we were. We were. But a day that the world, again, celebrates motherhood. Uh, the ability that God has given a woman the ability to carry a life and deliver it. Pretty amazing stuff. But what would be a crime is if today we didn't discuss spiritual life. You see, there's a possibility of two births and two deaths. We all have, everyone here had a physical birth. <laughs> okay? You all had a mom that gave birth to you. That's a fact. We know that. But Jesus tells us in John chapter 3 that you will not see the kingdom of heaven unless you're born again. And the religious teacher, it's amazing how we all become children around Jesus because he's so brilliant. He's the word of God. The religious teacher, Nicodemus, said, Jesus, I don't understand. This is a religious teacher. He goes, how do we get born again into our mother's womb a second time? How does that happen? And Jesus says, you don't understand. It's a spiritual birth. It's the birth of, of the Holy Spirit. When we believe in Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross and his sacrifice and his shed blood for the remission of our sins, we are born again into spiritual life. So we have a birthday. Mine is 9-30-67. Don't use that to get yourself a credit card, okay? But that was my first birthday, physical. But I also had a birthday of my spiritual life when I received Jesus as my Lord and Savior. Because we're all going to die a physical death. That's another fact. You were all born. Everybody here was born. And everyone here is going to die a physical death. But there's a second death called the spiritual death. Now, that's the death that we want to avoid. That's the death that we're punished. That's the death that we rebelled against God and God says, you, you didn't follow the plan. You didn't, you know, you have sin. And the only way I can be reconciled to you is through Jesus, my son, who shed his blood on the cross for your sins. The only way not to have that second death is to be born again. So, John chapter 3, uh, if those of you who are not very familiar with the Bible, John 3:16, For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. Um, that whole thing is where we get born again from. Now, it doesn't mean that if you say, I go to a church that's a born-again church, or you give yourself a title that says that you're born again, that doesn't mean that you're born again. It has to be a spiritual thing. Okay? So this Mother's Day, as we celebrate our physical birth, if those of us who maybe are not sure about that and you want to ask questions afterwards, we should also ponder our spiritual birth. Let's pray.